0: Welcome to Climate Plus, a DevEx podcast. I'm Michael Igo, senior reporter at DevEx. Every year, usually around this time, the world turns its attention to climate change and what we're doing or not doing about it. At the UN Climate Conference, or COP, negotiators get deep into the weeds on every aspect of the climate crisis. This year, it's happening in Dubai. To help make sense of this complex, critical moment, we're bringing you conversations with leading climate thinkers, activists, and experts, and asking them, can COP28 deliver?
1: I'm expecting COP28 to regain the trust because we lost trust. We built something in the Paris Agreement. We said all together in the same ship.
0: A climate COP, technically a conference of parties to the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, can be a little disorienting and honestly alienating. There's a blue zone, a green zone, there's a thematic program, ministerial meetings and summits and roundtables. not to mention the negotiations themselves, which can be both highly technical And also very political. To help make sense of it all, I wanted to talk to someone who's been involved in this process for a long time and who has even had the responsibility of hosting a COP. Hakima El Haite is the former Minister of Environment for the Kingdom of Morocco. She was a vice president of COP21, where the Paris Agreement was signed, and she played a key role in bringing the next year's COP, COP22, to Morocco. Here's our conversation. Akuma, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: It's great to get a chance to catch up with you. You are someone who's been involved in this climate negotiations process for a long time and played some really key and critical roles um, at various points along the way. I was hoping we could... Start with the big picture here and sort of take a step back from this specific COP. You know, in 2015, obviously we had this big breakthrough with the Paris Climate Agreement. You played a significant role in making that happen. Here we are now, eight years later, we're seeing all kinds of climate-related disasters around the world. Negotiations continue on some really important but also very technical issues. When you take a step back and look at this whole climate negotiation process in its entirety, where do you think we are in that story right now? Is it a story of sort of incremental progress um, or a story of big breakthroughs followed by disappointments? What's the the narrative arc to all of this that you see?
1: Uh, thank you. Let me first begin by the positive. Uh, narrative. Always a good
0: place to start.
1: (laughs) Yes, I think that since the Paris Agreement, we achieved a lot about raising awareness about climate change. We achieved a lot about uh, relating to technology, innovation, the involvement of the non-state actors. We are moving from a technical agenda to a societal agenda. We are moving from negotiation between ministers and negotiators to an agenda which is held by the citizens of this world and this is amazing. So we we saw the te- technology evolving also and uh, the latest report of the UN uh, I have read said that uh, I would say 75% of the technologies needed to meet the, the Paris Agreement is already available and this is amazing now what is the bad face of the the story and the history is that this cop 28 is happening in a very very special geopolitical situation we are facing as human beings. We, we know that COP28 is happening in a time of uh, a COVID, a pandemic, which is not ended. And now we know with all the consequences on the, the, the rise of the prices, the inflations worldwide, this COP is happening while we have two wars, one in Europe, uh, treating the, the energy security of Europe and impacting the food security in Africa in particular. Uh, so uh, uh, this war is happening also after the result of the stock take, the stock take which is a very, very important rendezvous of the Paris Agreement. And this stock take this year, which was released some weeks ago, some months ago, said that we are not on the right track to meet the Paris Agreement objectives. And uh, as you said in your introductory words, the world is now witnessing uh, disaster in all the corners. So we cannot, the urgency of uh, climate change uh, c- cannot wait anymore, and actions should be now. But uh, uh, are the leaders of this world ready? to place the urgency of climate change over their own interests, their own uh, positioning, their own uh, geopolitical influence. This is the main question, and we will see the result during COP28. Because since the Paris Agreement, we did a lot. We increased the part of renewable, of the green investment, etc., but what we did also, we increased CO2 emissions. So we are not at all on the right track.
0: You mentioned the global stocktake. This is sort of the, the process by which countries assess and then report back on their progress against the Paris Climate Agreement. I And, and as you mentioned, many of them are, are not um, taking the necessary actions or seeing the necessary results to measure up. I guess I'd be curious to hear, how do you reflect on the Paris Agreement itself at this point? Is that agreement proving sufficiently resilient to stand up to all of the pressures that you're describing? Does it have enough teeth? Did it come with enough, um, you know, enforcement power or at least sort of self-enforcement power? Is it the fit for purpose instrument of agreement that everybody hoped it might be?
1: You know, in any, uh, agreement you have those who are feeling winners and those who are feeling uh, uh, losing through an agreement. There is no fair agreement in this world and the Paris Agreement was a consensual agreement which was brought to the table and that time we have decided under the principle of common and differentiated responsibilities that the developed world the, the one who has lead to this climate crisis, will take the responsibility to bring answers and to bring solutions and to support the developing world in tackling climate change. But now the the, the, the fact is that we are seeing that the world is witnessing a, a division, not only in terms of climate change uh, agreement, but also in many uh, other agreements. And the division means that you have regional blocks you have different alliances, you have uh, some political posturing and rivalities between countries. Climate has no borders, no frontier, no nationality, and climate change is threatening all the corners of this world. Each year, We are losing lives. We are witnessing destructions everywhere because of climate disasters. And let me tell you something. I am coming from a developing world. I'm coming from Africa. If in United States, in Europe, we have the financial capacity to tackle the disasters and to tackle climate change, here in the developing world, and especially in Africa where I'm coming from, we don't have such capacities we we even don't have the technology. And the consequences of this lack of financial capacities, of this energy of inactions to tackle climate change are filled in Europe. Look at the waves of migration we are generating because of conflict around water, because of the access, uh, the lack of the access of electricity. Can you imagine that 600 million people in Africa don't have access to energy? So The Paris Agreement is a development agenda, is a security agenda, is a peace agenda. And we need to come back again and to build the trust, because today the trust is eroded. Many promises from the Paris Agreement were not kept to participate you know that in the paris agreement we have this national determined contribution which are a kind of a contribution of all the parties to the paris agreement to come and to tell us how they will tackle climate change what is the medium and long term uh, action plan in terms of mitigation and adaptation and These NDCs, the National Determined Contributions, show that we are not aligned with the the objective of the Paris Agreement, that these NDCs are not ambitious enough, and we are asking the developing world to do more, to phase out coal, to phase out fossil fuel, uh, to do more, and and there is a lack of financing, and this is what the stock takes uh, showed. There is no finance, no promises kept, and we are asking more and more to the most vulnerable to do more to solve the climate change crisis.
0: Climate Plus is supported by the World Bank. Back in October, World Bank president Ajay Banga called for a new vision for ending poverty on a livable planet with a focus on climate action. We cannot endure another period of emission-heavy growth. We must find a way to finance a different world where our climate is protected, where pandemics are manageable, if not preventable, where food is abundant and fragility and poverty are defeated. We do not suffer from a shortage of solutions. We're just paralyzed by a persistent lack of courage to pursue them. The good news is that we have solutions like these within reach and resources at our disposal to scale them. To learn more about efforts to end poverty on a livable planet, search for The World Bank Group at COP28 or click the link in the show notes. I wonder if you think that this COP process can sort of compartmentalize itself um, to keep at bay some of those geopolitics and stay focused on the specific negotiating items that are at hand here, or is that the wrong way to look at it? I mean, In many respects, this is an inherently geopolitical... I mean, it's in the... You know, this exists in a context of geopolitics.
1: You know, COP, it's... uh... I will say that uh, the people used to say that COP is two streams. I will say that COP is three streams. The first one is negotiations. And negotiation, you have a certain agenda concerning adaptation, technology transfer and capacity building, loss and damage, finance, uh, uh, global cooperation, the non-state actor involvement, etc. This is a, a stream, the stream of negotiation... Uh, uh, can move but it will uh, it is depending on the political stream and this political stream is not decided by the negotiators or the ministers of uh, environment it's decided by the leadership of this world we know that uh, the major part of co2 emissions is coming from fossil fuel so if tomorrow the decision to decrease CO2 emissions is to cut or to phase out from fossil fuel and to cut fossil fuel subsidies, the economic consequences on the most powerful countries in the world will be very heavy. Can we... Uh, live in a world with, where China is still uh, producing coal and uh, energy from coal and from fossil fuel and the United States is not? I don't think so. So I think that you cannot separate the uh, three agenda, the agenda of actions, which is the non-state actors' agenda. This is the first stream. The second one, the agenda of negotiations. And the third one is the political agenda. And this political agenda is very important. If we are not linking these three streams, we are not moving at all. If the leaders are coming to the COP, are making statements, are making pledges and it's not translated into the uh, agenda of negotiations, it uh, it leads to, uh, um, to losing the trust of all the countries. And this is what was happening. And we were denouncing the fact, as ministers, that the negotiators were not uh, aligned with the leaders' uh, pledges. The move on the path of uh, carbon neutrality can only be possible if these negotiations are first fair between the north and the south, the developed world and the developing world, if these negotiations are inclusive and uh, nobody is left behind. At what happens this year in Marrakesh, here in Morocco, we had had the event of uh, uh, the World Bank, the original event of the World Bank, which was held for the first time outside Washington in Marrakesh. And we were talking about the reform of the, the financial institutions to make them aligned, to green them, and to make their investment aligned with the Paris Agreement. But this which is amazing, it's in itself a dilemma. These institutions are financing the developing world, which is uh, uh, now uh, not a big emitter. Uh, If you take the example of Africa, Africa is only emitting 4% of CO2 emissions. So if you come to Africa and you ask uh, the Africans to green their investment, they will not have access to their natural resources anymore, to to their gas, to their oil, to their coal, and the you will burden their their debt, and it's yeah, it's a really a dilemma. I think that we should reach a consensus where uh, we have we are given access to such countries, to the most vulnerable countries, were well, first keeping the promises of 100 billion a year. This should be on the table, which is not the situation now. Second, we should facilitate and make more accessible the finance. Third, we cannot close the door to the developing world to invest on their own resources while in United States, in Europe, we are still investing in coal, in oil, in uh, gas, etc. So so I think that uh, uh, if we want to find a balanced outcome of COP28, we should have some wi- wisdom and so, some fairness, some justice, you know, to to make things happen.
0: With the three streams that you outlined, the action stream, the political stream, and the negotiation stream, what does a successful COP28 mean to you? What does that look like when everybody, you know, two days after they planned to finally packs up their bags and heads home from Dubai this year? What will tell you that it's been a success? Recognizing that those three streams, as you pointed out are all mutually dependent.
1: You know, I will differentiate between these three streams. The first one is negotiations. Negotiations, there is a certain agenda on the negotiations and the the negotiators have to deliver on each item. So this is, uh, and I can tell you that the pre-COP didn't uh, was not very successful in terms of uh, reaching a consensus on the agenda negotiation. And the, the second stream is the political one. And the non state actor stream is the most active in the three streams. So innovation is there, uh, the, the non the state actors are involved, but they need this political signal from the leaders that will uh, uh, ignite and will uh, foster uh, the development and the innovation. Uh, when you are talking, for example, about electrical cars, uh, you cannot continue in in United States, in Europe, to subsidy fossil fuel and oil while in the same time you are encouraging electrical mobility. So these uh, companies are not feeling secure because they are feeling that they are not competitive because of the subsidies. You cannot remove the incentives on the electrical mobility, increase the subsidies on oil, and say to the private sector, yeah, please invest in uh, green mobility. These are... Uh, incoherencies, which are not helping the private sector to invest on, uh, on climate change. So we need that the international community or the leaders, the political message should be first, coherency. Second political message should be justice and fairness. We cannot, we are not renegotiating the Paris Agreement. We have already made this agreement, and we have these two lists, and we have the developing world and the developed world, and each one of these areas have its responsibility toward the historical pollution uh, and the the historical uh, emissions of CO2 emissions. So, we are not negotiating again, uh, once again, the Paris Agreement, and this should be Clear in the mind of the leaders, you cannot uh, stop an agreement on loss and damage because China is still uh, is still uh, emitting uh, CO two emission, and it will peak in two thousand and thirty. We have decided already under the principle of common and differentiated responsibility that China is in this, the list of the developing world. That was the decision of the Paris Agreement. Did we make a mistake? Yes, maybe. Because I was advocating for all the industrial countries should answer and take the same responsibilities. We did the, the, We did not succeed in making this happen, and the Paris Agreement is what it is. And there is a say in Arabic which says, "Better to have a, a bad agreement than uh, to to go to the court." And this is the situation now. It's maybe uh, unfair for some countries, but we have to respect this agreement. And exemplarity should come from the developed world. I always used to say in Morocco, unless, that it's not climate change, it's climate chance. But in Morocco, we are not an oil producer, we are not a coal producer, and the best reservoir we have is sun. So we have implemented the biggest installation of solar power. We are greening our mobility, our transport, we are building uh, uh, in a sustainable way our new programs. But in Morocco, we have no choice. If you go to to the Gulf regions, take Saudi Arabia, for example, or Algeria, 90% of the GDP of Algeria is oil-based. Can you ask Algeria tomorrow to phase out fossil fuel? No, you cannot. So, I think that there is a balance to to reach and to find, uh, taking into account uh, coherency, fairness, justice, and especially responsibility. And this, it's a very, very difficult equation to to solve, but... uh, I rely on the leadership of the Emirates, which is a very, by the way, which is a very good example. Emirates, ten million habitants are oil producer, but seventy percent of their GDP is not oil related, and that is very good. So this kind of countries can subscribe to energy transition very easily, but let's its its case it's different and let's open our mind to reach this carbon neutrality uh, with a minimum uh, impact on the most vulnerable.
0: Are you looking for the inside story on what's happening at organizations like the World Bank, USAID, or the Gates Foundation? then you need to be reading DevEx Pro. I'm Jessica Abrahams and I'm the editor of DevEx Pro. Pro is DevEx's premium news subscription where our expert reporters and analysts take you beyond the headlines, deep into the trends and institutions shaping the $200 billion aid industry. As well as all our news, you'll get access to conversations with global development leaders, resources to help you grow in your career, and a subscriber-only newsletter full of insider news and tidbits. Super yourself by getting a free trial today devx.com slash pro it obviously gets very complicated in the details and even with something like common but differentiated responsibility, you know the principle makes a lot of sense, but ultimately as you're pointing out, you're dealing with something on almost a case by case basis, country by country, and, and each of those countries has their own political economies and leadership transitions and all kinds of things going on internally. So it gets very, very difficult, particularly to sustain over time. But I guess one, I'm picking up a few sort of common threads or themes in what you're saying, one being upholding prior commitments, another being avoiding hypocrisy or double standards, and a third being a sort of overarching obligation to equity and justice throughout this process are those do you see those as some of the key principles to to maintain here
1: absolutely and this for me it's not only a question of the north and the south uh, look at what is happening in europe for example in europe uh, this year after the war between uh, uh, russia and ukraine uh, europe was put into uh, uh, energy insecurity and they are opening uh, reopening some coal industries they are uh, the, the, the 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 conception of oil have and gas have never been as high as as it was during the the, the war uh, in Europe, but what can we say to Europe? Stop heating uh, your houses and die b- because of cold, uh, because you didn't implement renewable uh, since the Paris Agreement. How can we deal with such issue? I think that we should uh, first, as leaders. Think about what is the priority of this world. Uh, should we? What is negotiable and what is not negotiable. A war is always negotiable. Climate change, no. We are not negotiating with Mother Earth. When Mother Earth is angry, nobody can stop it. War, we can stop. Diplomacy should work again. Multilateralism should work again. We cannot forget the consequences of the First World War and the Second World War with the promises the world leaders did that time after the Second World War. So I think maybe these wars are opening a window of opportunities to open the eyes and the brain and to bring back the wisdom of the leaders of this world. Because as exactly like the as the world do, Climate change is killing. And I think that we need to realize not the urgency, but how dreadful is climate change and nature can be. And if we take into consideration such things, maybe we will have to live in a a better place and a better world and a peaceful world.
0: Well, Hakima, it's a daunting but optimistic agenda. I Appreciate so much your sharing those ambitions and aspirations with us. Thanks for taking the time to talk with me today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening to Climate Plus. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it. And you can also leave us a rating or a review. We'll be publishing episodes twice a week in the lead up to during and after COP28 so make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform. If you want to share some feedback on this episode or have questions you'd like answered, we'd love to hear from you. Drop me a message on X, formerly Twitter, at Alter Igo, or send an email to podcast at devx.com. Climate Plus is a podcast from DevX. It's hosted by me, Michael Igo. Today's episode was produced and edited by Naomi Miara.